Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is God Quake by Pastor Sean Wood. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to talk about uh, a little man, and I don't say that uh, lightly. We're going to talk about a little man, a giant spiritually, but physically a little man. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. But most of us will know of Saul, and most of us will know his story. Uh, Saul is one of the few first century Christians that fills the Roman historian books. Uh, such a pest was he uh, to the Roman Empire that they recorded much of what he did. And uh, there was a gentleman I knew when I was in Tasmania and he, he grew up, I grew up with him when I was in the Salvation Army. And when he was young, you could see the potential and you could see that God had a calling on his life, but he was just mucking around and it was just a big joke. But then something happened to this man. We couldn't explain it. Happened in a moment of time and Next thing you know, everybody was saying, we don't know what's happened to this guy. And I can't use his name because people from Tasmania will know who I'm talking about. Uh, we don't know what's happened to this guy, but all of a sudden, it's like God became a reality to him. He wasn't joking around anymore. And God did have a call on his life. And up until very recently, he passed a church in Launceston, Tasmania for some years. And, uh, but we could definitely see there was a moment when God became a reality And this morning, as we continue our Reaching Out series, I want to talk about God quakes. Moments in our lives when God completely unsettles us. It's a part of the process of conversion. Have you ever noticed that when you start praying for loved ones, that all of a sudden their world starts to fall apart? Tell them they're welcome. Because God's beginning to work in their life. And there are, scripture is filled with moments when people had God quakes, which is very soon followed by self quakes. A God quake is when God moves from being a concept or an abstract idea to being a reality. All of a sudden, this isn't just a set of ideas. All of a sudden, this isn't just some God that lives out in the distant, far, far galaxy with Yoda somewhere. This is a God who is real, personal, and individual. There's a moment when that happens. But there's also self-quakes, where not only do we get a revelation of who God is, we get a revelation of who we are. And there's a number of people in Scripture that had God-quakes. And I'm going to reel off a few and then we're going to look at one today and have a look at that process. And, and the reason I say that is because most of our lives, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we look back at our lives, there, there was a moment in time when we had a God quake, when God became a reality. And if that's not you today, I pray it is you. Shortly followed by a self quake, in Western society today, what is needed is a self quake. People need to be aware that they are in a sinful condition under the wrath of God if they are outside of Christ. But then God takes that, and if we have a look at the man we're going to look at today, he takes that and he shakes the world around us. Job. Everybody knows the story of Job, right? Everybody thinks it's a big gambling debt between God and the enemy, but what happens is Job is listed as a blameless and upright man. 
which doesn't mean he was sinless. It just meant that all the intentions and motiv- motivations of his heart were pure. He was a, he was a man that, w- that just made sure he, he's going to make sacrifices for his kids just to make sure everything's on the level. The enemy we read about in the first two chapters, let me paraphrase it for you. He comes into the presence of God and says, you know what? Job only married you for your money. In other words, God, if Job only likes you, Job only serves you because of everything you give him. So the enemy says, take it all away and he will curse you. And we know the story of Job, right? But something happened to Job. Something very deep and something very profound. Because by the time we reach chapter 42, verse 5, Job says, up until now I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear. He says, but now my eye sees you. He had a God quake. There's another man, if we go uh, some centuries forward, there's a man by the name of Isaiah. Here's something you may not know about Isaiah. Isaiah was uh, one of the elite. He, he often uh, worshipped and he was involved in the religious practices and he was a very elite. His family lineage was very elite and he was very self-confident. Here's a man that day after day after day after day spent worshipping God. <laughs> and then as one commentator says, one day he showed up. And the one person Isaiah wasn't expecting to meet, he saw. It sounded like this, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. And this elite man that thought he had it all together, something very profound happens. He has a self-quake and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell with men and women of unclean lips. And it took an angel to take a coal from the altar and touch his lips to make atonement. He had a God quake and he had a self-quake. Jeremiah is a, a... at best, maybe a 12 to 14 year old boy when God calls him to prophesy. So unsure of himself, trembling before God. It's interesting. God says to Jeremiah, stop trembling. God says to Isaiah, you need to start trembling. God says to Jeremiah, what do you see? He has a God quake. Let's bring it into the New Testament now. A man we're going to talk about in a moment as well. We're going to reference him in a moment. as a guy by the name of Peter. Something you need to know about Peter. Peter didn't manage to have foot in mouth disease. He was Tasmanian. He could get both feet in at the same time. (laughs) But Peter's in a fishing boat with other disciples. Jesus says, throw the net on this side. And they haul in so many fish, it's nearly sinking the boat. All the other disciples are busy pulling in the fish. What does Peter do? He turns around and he puts his eyes on Jesus and he says, away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. In a very brief moment, Peter became alarmingly aware of who Jesus is and who he is, all in the same moment. He had a God quake. I pray that you have a God quake. Because I've come to learn in my life walking with Christ is that our journey with Christ often starts with a God quake, right? But I've also found that God has a tendency to shake as time goes on as well. And I pray that each one of us in this room would have a God quake. If you haven't had a God quake and we're talking about conversions, what does that look like? What is God's part? What is our part? What is, what is the believer's part? And And I love the words of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was last century's most prolific apologist. But he would say, I am the reluctant convert. 
he says, after studying the evidence, I am compelled to give my life to Christ. But he, speaking about his conversions, he says this. He says, God closed in on me. He says, I freely chose to surrender my life to Christ. He says, but I felt like I had no other option. I wonder what Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, as he is known to most of us, I wonder what he would say. Let's have a look as we work through his story today. Acts chapter 9, but Saul. First of all, who is Saul? Well, often we we think of Saul as this huge, stout, towering guy because he's a spiritual giant. But he had the nickname Paul the Little because Paul was, uh, best estimates, about four and a half feet tall. Four and a half feet tall. Bless. Bless his heart. The benefit of being four and a half feet tall is you don't bump your head as often as other people. But what we may or may not know about Saul is that he was one of the most religious or most devout religious people of his time. You see, uh, he was he, he was a Pharisee, uh, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would call himself. Uh, according to the law, he goes as far as to say, according to the law, I was blameless. Uh, he, he leaves Tarsus to study Judaism in Jerusalem and he grows up at the feet of a man by the name of Gamaliel, one of the most respected and devout rabbis of that time. He says he's my father. He calls Gamaliel his father. It's very interesting. The Saul of Tarsus that we meet in Acts chapter 9 hates Christianity. Why? Because the gospel is a threat, a massive threat to religiosity. Huge threat. And Paul zealously, dangerously zealously, persecutes the church. He is there casting his coat in the favour of stoning Stephen. And I introduced Saul of Tarsus because this morning... I would encourage you to start to think about the one person who you think would never come to Christ. Right now, think about who is the person, that you, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody else that you think, you know what, that is one person. I want to encourage you today, as we work our way through the account of Saul of Tarsus, we're going to learn one thing, nobody is out of God's reach. There is nobody that God cannot shake the foundations of their life. I've seen it. Maybe, maybe we've all experienced it. Maybe we were that person that was so far removed from God until he closed in on us. Saul of Tarsus, but Saul of Tarsus has, he worships a God. He doesn't worship the God. Saul of Tarsus has done what many people do today. He's made a God that is comfortable for him. You see what religion deceives you into thinking is that I worship a God that I can control. As long as I do A, B, C and D, as long as I do those things, then, then everything's going to be all right and I'll be, and I'll be the number one in God's eyes and I have to earn favour in God's eyes. And he had constructed a God that does not even exist. What is interesting is that he could almost repeat the first five books word for word, straight out of memory. Anybody else do that here? I can't. 
He knew the scriptures better than anybody sitting in this room, but he missed Jesus. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We're going to, as we work our way through the story, we're going to realise that there's no ABCs and there's no formula for conversion. Last week we had a look at an Ethiopian. Next week we're going to have a look at a Roman centurion. And this week we're having a look at one of the most religious men in the first century. But we're going to realise that although their accounts are different, the result's the same. But there's elements of conversion that are the same. Every, every conversion has an encounter. Yeah. Which is shortly followed by a surrender. Which is then followed by an embrace. Let's walk our way through the first part where Saul of Tarsus has an encounter. He asked for letters from the synagogues at Damascus, which is interesting because the Jewish synagogues had no dominion or no jurisdiction in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was the first term of Christianity was the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, one thing we need to know, God comes unexpected. Uh, uh, what we know about Isaiah was he was just going through the motions, right? On a day that he saw the Lord. Peter was just fishing, right? On a day that he saw the Lord and Saul of Tarsus is just on his way to Damascus. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and Saul, in a, in a heartbeat, Saul's going to have to change his underpants. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. It's interesting, if you read the word Saul in verse 1, it's the Greek translation of the word or the name Saul. If you read Saul, Saul, that Jesus uses the Hebrew. Paul even says later on, when he's recounting his testimony in chapters 22 and 26, he says, God spoke to me in Hebrew. That's very interesting. God speaks all languages. But why Hebrew? Because that's, hey, I'm the God you think you're worshipping. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't his answer interesting though? And he said, who are you? Lord, yeah, that's right. Saul has an unexpected encounter on the road to Damascus. Saul is one of the most religious men. Saul can repeat scripture, but he says, who are you? I don't know you. You see, Saul spends more time in church than probably any of us here. He goes to the temple more than any of us. Spends all his time in church, prays more than any of us, reads the Bible more than any of us, and has no idea who Jesus is. but he has a God quake. Who are you, Lord? And whoa, what an answer. Just imagine for a moment what's going through Saul's mind when he hears these three words. I am Jesus. In those three words, Jesus has just absolutely demolished Paul's world. His whole life, his whole education, his whole religiosity, everything that Paul had lived for up until this point is brushed away in a second, the moment that he says, I am Jesus. 
Paul says something very interesting in Acts chapter 26. Paul, when he recounts this, he says that Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? My step-uncle, I love horses, by the way. This isn't a thing against horses. But my step-uncle married a lady that had two horses. And every Saturday, her and her daughter would take the two horses and put them in the trailer, take them somewhere to ride them. And uh, as my step-uncle would describe, so the theatrics would begin. They would try luring them into the trailer with food and, and they would try to be all nice and you know, talk and one would get up into the trailer. And Graham said, you know what, one morning I got sick of it. He says, I went down to the shed and got a whip out of the shed. He said, crack the whip. He said, you've never seen two horses go into the trailer so quick. That's what a goat is. A goad is an ox goad. They would use this sharp implement so that when the ox were, were not moving or they were not going in the right direction, Jesus says, you're kicking against the goads, Paul. I've been trying to steer you for some time. I don't know about anybody else in this room, but at the moment that I surrendered my life to Christ and I looked back, I could see God with his goad for some time. Anybody else ever noticed that? Something else I've noticed is from the moment I surrendered, God never put the goat away. Every now and again, I still need it. Thank you for the commentary. (laughs) That'll let you know that sometimes I still need it. Fall into the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Isn't it interesting? If you come against God's people, you come against God. You've set yourself against me, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. And in a moment, Paul has had a God quake. His world has fallen apart. He's had an encounter. Let's keep reading on and see what happens to Saul. And he said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Verse 7, the men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He's blind. Plunged into darkness. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Here is a man that is at complete and utter rock bottom. You might be sitting here this morning wondering to yourself, I do get asked this question a lot. People say, I I wonder whether I'm even saved. I I wonder whether... And sometimes we overcomplicate this. And I want to help people to understand that what conversion actually is, is a radical, transformational redirection of your life. Sometimes we make Christianity out to be this, this aura of perfection. No, 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 no. Following Christ is not about perfection, it's about direction. And so I would ask you to ask yourself this question first. If, if you're wondering, I wonder whether I, I'm even saved or whether I'm converted. Well, who is Jesus to you? You see, if Paul had answered that question before this encounter, what would Paul have said about Jesus? That he's a myth, he doesn't even exist. That he's a pest. But he has an encounter, right? 
And what we see from Paul now is there is a complete redirection of his life. There is a surrender. He's completely helpless, completely at rock bottom. There was another man that reached this point. Uh, Many people think that Peter the Apostle, they think, well, the most prominent moment in Peter's life was Pentecost, right? He stands up, preaches a sermon, 5,000 converted. Well, that was the men. Who was counting, by the way? Don't know. Somebody had the abacus out. But at least 5,000 men were converted. What, what, What a crowning moment, right? But the most defining moment in Peter's life wasn't when he was standing at Pentecost. The most defining moment in Peter's life was when the rooster crowed. Because in a heartbeat, he had a God quake and a self quake, right? Because leading up to that, you know, Jesus comes and says, you know, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter puffs his chest out and says, I'll never deny you, Lord. If I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. That changed, right? He thought he was all that and a box of kale. That's for free this morning. But what he learnt when the rooster crowed was, you know what? I'm at rock bottom. I'm not who I thought I was. I'm in desperate need of Jesus. And there is a dependency switch. And for most of us in this room, this is a process that takes all of our life where we shift from self-dependence to God-dependence. It begins a conversion. But God will absolutely strip away our self-dependence. Have a look at Saul of Tarsus. Have a look at this proud man. Have a look at this religious zealot. Have a look at this man that nobody told him what to do. Nobody told him where to go. He grew up at the feet of Gamaliel and now he is blind and being led by the hand into Damascus. But spare a thought for the next guy. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. We don't know a whole lot about Ananias and what is recorded about Ananias is assumption and speculation. So I'm not going to say any more than what is recorded here in Scripture. Uh, Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Bet you you wished he hadn't said that. Uh, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. The man that went to Damascus to lay his hands on the Christians will have the Christians lay their hands on him. Just as I pause for a moment, please realise that God didn't have to use Ananias. God chose to use Ananias to minister to Paul. I want to encourage every believer in this room this morning to use the same words as Ananias. Here I am, Lord. There is a world that is waiting for Christians to stand up and say, here I am, Lord. What did, interesting, what did Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord, send me. God didn't say this, but God hadn't told him anywhere where he was going yet. God hadn't even told him what the go was. But Isaiah, one vision and revelation of who God really is, Isaiah didn't care. What was the message after that? 
God says, listen, go and speak to these people. None of them are ever going to listen to you. How's that for success in ministry? Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many. (laughs) This guy's got a bit of a reputation, right? I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for why? For he is a chosen instrument. Word instrument is a vessel. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. Here comes the world quake. You see, God's doing a massive work right now in Saul of Tarsus, right? A massive redirection of Saul's life. And all of it has a missional focus. What God is working in, he has intended to work out. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. If God says this about you, you need to start praying. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I wanted to pause there for a moment because often we, you know, we get lost in words like chosen instrument and oh glory to Jesus and this is all wonderful and now my life is just going to be a super anointed presence of God moment where I'm just going to drift in and out of clouds. Paul teaches us that there's a cost to following Christ. So Ananias departed. Have a listen to the words of Ananias when he gets to Saul. Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, what? Brother? (laughs) The persecutor has turned proclaimer. Ananias says, brother. That's not an accidental word. Brother saw the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came. He has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I love this. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. We live in a world full of people who have scales on their eyes. The scales that fell from Saul's eyes, we don't know what they were. The the description is like fish scales. That's the description that's given in the Greek, but we don't know what they were, but we know that a religious zealot that was so far removed from God has now been brought near by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that conversion begins with an encounter, shortly followed by surrender. I want to begin to ask a few questions here this morning. Have you encountered Christ? But the most important one I want to ask today is, have you surrendered to Christ? C.S. Lewis says we're all rebels. And we need to lay down our arms and raise the white flag in our hearts. And conversion requires a turning from, it's twofold, It's a turning from. It's a turning from the world. It's a turning from sin. It's a turning from rebellion. It's a turning from I will have life my way. 
and it involves turning to somebody and following after Christ. Uh, J.I. Packer, one of last century's greatest theologians, died at a very ripe age uh, after being hit by a train in in his early years. But J.I. Packer says in describing faith, he was asked to sum up, what does... What does faith and belief mean? If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that the term accepting Christ isn't there. But what you will find is words like believe and receive. And so somebody asked J.R. Packer one day, they said, well, how do you sum that up? And he said, faith is an embrace. Believing upon Christ is letting go and abandoning everything else and grabbing hold of God with both arms. How sad it is that so many try to have one arm around God and one arm around the world, right? But you can't do that. And we see evidence in every single case. Last week we saw it with the Ethiopian. Next week we will see it with the centurion. Today we're going to see it in the life of Saul. We're going to ask ourselves the point, what was their response How do we know that they embraced Christ? What did that even look like? Every single one of them were baptised. And baptism is huge today. It's enormous. And I love baptisms because it's God taking ground for the kingdom. But it was massive in the first century. Baptism, it wasn't common. Uh, baptism was often performed by, by the religious elite when they maybe made a proselyte or, a, or, or some kind of distant convert that they might baptise them. It wasn't something you'd... It's why the, the religious leaders sent people to, to ask John the Baptist, uh, why do you baptise? In other words, by what authority are you doing this? It, it wasn't overly common, but what we have is men and women and even children recorded in the book of Acts next week. The whole house, including the children, stand up before everybody. That's what baptism is. Baptism is standing up and saying, I want to declare to everybody on the outside that God has done something massive on the inside. And what you're saying at baptism is you're embracing Christ and you're saying, I am forsaking the world and walking after Christ. Some years ago, uh, I preached a sermon called Burn the Boats. And uh, I think it was Sun Zhao in his book, The Art of War. I can't remember what his name was. But he actually taught as a military, uh, he taught that this was a military tactic was to burn the boats. When you, when you arrived at a, at a foreign country, he, he taught leaders that as a military term, he says, burn the boats. It was twofold. It told your men, we're not going home until we achieve what we came here to do. There's no going back. That's, as, a, as a military leader, what you're saying is, there's no going back. The boats are burnt, we're here. We either achieve what we've set out to achieve or we die. But it was twofold. Burning the boats was telling the men we're not going anywhere, but it was also telling your enemy. We're not backing down. And baptism symbolises in a very powerful way somebody who's standing up saying, I'm burning the boats. What you're saying is, I'm following Christ and I'm not going back. 
What you're saying is, I don't care how tough it is from this point onwards, I'm following Christ. What you're saying to the enemy is, this is why the enemy is so set against baptism. Because the enemy knows what you're telling him is, I'm not going back. Throughout the record of the Gospels, as I bring this to a close, I've said this before and I want to make it clear today. God wants to shake Brisbane through you. God can do it without us. That's what we're learning, right? But he chooses not to. The wonderful divine privilege is he chooses to use us. It starts with God shaking us and and we need God quakes and self quakes in our own lives so that we can shake the world around us. And throughout the Gospels, I don't know where we ever came up with a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh race, but there are three responses in the Gospels to the person of Jesus Christ listed. Only three. Those that encountered Christ either hated him and wanted to kill him, were deeply afraid of him and ran away from him, or a very small few were entirely besotted by him and cast the fullness of their life on him. And so I want to ask you today, which one of those describes you? You see, somewhere over the last 2,000 years, we've developed a few other responses that look like, you know what, I'll just add, I'll just, Jesus is a really cool addition to my life. I'll just, I'll just add a room over there and I'll go down. When everything goes pear-shaped in my life, I'll, I'll go down to the back room where I keep Jesus and I'll open the dark room and I'll call on Jesus until everything goes okay. Somewhere... Somewhere along the line, we've kind of developed this half-hearted response that looks like, you know what, um, Jesus, if I've got nothing better to do on a Sunday, if if I've got nothing better to do first thing of the morning, I might open the Bible or go to church. I can tell you now, friends, this world is waiting for men and women and children of God to stand up and say, there's no going back for me. I live for Christ and I love him. And I'm besotted with him. How many of us, though, if we're honest with ourselves, keep the boats on the shore just in case? In the first century, everyone's been pulling apart the book of Acts. And they say, you know, I want to do church like they did in the first century. Well, you can't because you don't live in the first century. And I wonder whether most of us here really want to. You see, church was a little bit different in the first century. Sunday was the culmination of meeting together all through the week. You see, Sunday started around about sunup. And after all the apostles had preached throughout the day, it finished somewhere around about sundown. Everybody started to go home. Who's here at five o'clock next week? Me, probably, yes. But they weren't more educated than anyone here. They didn't have any special anointing that isn't available to anybody in this room. 
They had the same Bible. In fact, they didn't have the New Testament that we have now. They had the same Jesus, the same God, the same Holy Spirit, but they shook their world. It's all summed up in a beautiful little word in Acts chapter 2. Right towards the end of Acts chapter 2, it says, and they were devoted. The first church was full of men and women and children, the record tells us, that had burnt the boats and said, you know what, we're in. And they paid a heavy price. I want to ask you today, is that you? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you closed in on me. I want to thank you that you shook my world. I want to thank you that when I thought I could do life on my own and that I was creating my own universe, you clearly showed me that you're the one that spoke the universe into existence. Father, this morning together, before we go anywhere this morning and we leave here, I want to say that we love you for who you are, not for what you have. We love you because you're magnificent. We worship you because you deserve it and you're glorious and you're worthy. Jesus, I thank you that when I was lost in my sins, you saved me. And I pray that you would use me and I pray that you would use every person in this room as vessels of salvation. We need your power and your help, Father. And I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. In your wonderful name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.